has a relationship with gender. What's your story? Hello and welcome to Gender Stories with your host, Dr. Alexian Taffy. Hello and welcome to another episode of Gender Stories. Um, I would like to thank all my regular listeners for your patience because the last two episodes uh, came out kind of a few days late. I'm kind of, I'm catching up. Just when I'm a spoonie, that means I live with uh, uh, disabilities and chronic illnesses. And so I just had a little bit of a delay, but I'm, I'm catching up and uh, I'm going to be back on a regular schedule within the next few weeks. But so thank you for your patience uh, with me over the last past couple of episodes. And I hope you enjoyed the episodes, even though they were a little late. So this week, it's just me talking about self-consent and gender. And I will define self-consent in a moment and say a little bit more. Uh, but first of all, I wanted to tell you kind of why this topic. Um, I find that when I do trainings around gender, or when I talk with my clients, or even when I talk with folks in my community, or read various folks on Twitter around their relationship with gender, often what happens is that gender identities, expression, roles, and experiences can all kind of get wrapped up in one. Um, and there's not a lot of distinction made between how somebody identifies, how they might express their gender, what role they might have, which may or may not conform to stereotypical gender role ideas that we might have in dominant culture and societies, and what are experiences that we feel are kind of filtered through the lens of gender. But let me back up a little bit. Um, let's start from kind of what is self-consent. Um, I want to kind of give a shout out to Sophie Graham, who is an amazing sex and relationship counselor and coach. You can find out more of their material at loveuncommon.com. Uh, that's loveuncommon.com. And that's the definition on their article about self-consent and introduction. So these are Sophie's words. Self-consent, at its heart, is about treating your needs, desires, and limits with respect. It is about being curious about yourself and making choices that express your authentic self. It is central to learning to have a consensual relationship with others because it embeds consensual practice in your life and all your interactions. I believe we have to have consensual relationship with ourselves before we're capable of consenting to the interaction with others. That means understanding our own body's sense of yes and no and our own desires, needs and limits. Sophie goes on to talk more about self-consent in this introductory article, but really I wanted to kind of start from this idea of self-consent. And often I find the self-consent, so this idea of how do I know that I am doing what, what I want to be doing? How do I know that I have a sense of yes or no in my body. And of course, sometimes we also do things that we might not want to be doing, but we have made a commitment to do. Um, so for example, some days I might feel ambivalent about my capacity to kind of show up for work or for parenting. And I need to kind of really tune into myself 
to something a little bit more modulated that is not just yes or no, but how much can I show up in what capacity? And if I'm struggling, what is it that I need to support myself in order to show up to kind of my commitments? I hope that I'm making sense, dear listeners. Um, and the reason why I talk about self, I want to talk about self consent is because it's not something that is taught to us. Um, in the overculture. In fact, I don't know about you, but as somebody who was assigned female at birth, I definitely was taught um, both by my family, but also kind of the culture around me, that my needs were not as important <clears throat> as the needs of others. And, um, and that it was very important for me to meet the needs of others before my needs could even be met. Sometimes that might even look like not making any direct tasks about my needs. I remember a wonderful example of when I was training um, as a therapist and we talked a lot about communication. I'm, I'm a systemic therapist, also known as a family therapist. So we talked a lot, a lot about communication and relationship. And in one of the communication theories book, there was this example where there is a couple and they're driving along the highway and this is very gender and very kind of cis-heteronormative, but uh, go with me. That was the example in the book um, where the woman turns to the man and says, are you hungry? And he says, no, and they continue driving. And then about 20 minutes later, they have this huge argument about how he doesn't care about their needs because really what was happening was that she was hungry. But in dominant culture, Often people who are assigned female at birth are taught not to express desires, especially around hunger because of body image and food issues. And so that asking, are you hungry, meant, can we please stop for food? Um, but that is not how the man had heard it because that was not something he had been taught. However, this idea of kind of um, self-consent and knowing our own needs and desire doesn't impact just folks who are assigned female at birth. It also impacts folks who are assigned male at birth because, for example, even though they might be uh, taught, especially if they're cis men, um, you know, cis men might be taught that their needs and desires are valid, they can be met, they can be expressed. However, which are the needs and desires that can be met and expressed? Usually only the ones that kind of are in, uh, they are consistent, they're in compliance, I wanted to say, and then I thought, is that too strong a word? And I was like, no, I'm going to go with that. They're in compliance with the dominant cultural and societal expectation of what it means to be a man. And so maybe um, they can have self-consent when it comes to expressing their kind of their needs and desire and boundaries when it's... Um, when it conforms to the idea of masculinity, that it's in dominant societal um, and cultural scripts, but not as much when it does not. So, for example, um, I have worked with um, cis male survivors of um, sexual assault. And one of the things that can be very difficult is setting boundaries over their own bodies. So the idea that men can say, actually, please don't touch me in encounters, or can you please ask for consent before you touch me, that's, it's not consistent, it's not compliant with kind of cultural normative scripts, at least where I, where I live and also where I was brought up, um, with cultural and societal scripts around masculinity, if that makes sense. And so that can make it even, even harder. And of course, we, we could talk about this for a long time. It's so complicated. There are so many nuances. And the more I talk about this, the more I realize that I might go into a rabbit hole. So I'm going to keep to my show notes 
and try not to go down the rabbit hole so much. But the main point that I was trying to make is basically that self-consent is not something that's really kind of embedded um, in kind of dominant uh, social and cultural scripts, um, neither where I was brought up in Italy or where I lived for a long time in the United Kingdom or where I live now on Dakota and Anishinaabe territories currently known as Minneapolis, Minnesota in the U.S., um, and self-consent in itself is pretty gendered in many dominant cultures. Some of the examples that um, that we've given. So the idea that some people, because of their gender, might have their needs, desires, and boundaries more respected than others, but also only certain needs, desires, and boundaries. So not all needs, desires, and boundaries are going to really be equal depending on that gender lens. And of course, gender is not the only factor, right? For example, where I was brought up in Italy, um, there was a lot of pressure, and I spent a lot of time in Sicily, where my mom is from, there was a lot of pressure for children to be forced to hug and kiss relatives. And relatives was a really large umbrella. There were lots of aunts and uncles, because pretty much anybody who was close to a family was an aunt and uncle. And so in that context, there wasn't space for self-consent. And as a parent, I know that's something that's really close to my heart to make sure that my children are not forced to hug and kiss people. Um, you know, they can have manners and they can just say hello, but they don't ever have to hug or kiss people that they don't want to, including um, their parents or parental figures in their life. And culturally, there isn't a lot of respect for kind of children's autonomy and consent. But I think it's really important to t- kind of teach children consent from a young age in an age appropriate way. If we look at kind of another lens, the lens of disability, from a systemic uh, point of view, again, from a larger societal structure point of view, the enforced sterilization of young people with intellectual disabilities is still kind of rampant and going on. And generally, um, disabled people tend to have their autonomy um, removed and taken away from by both caregivers and healthcare providers very frequently and um and that kind of again takes away that possibility of really treating one's needs desires and limits with respect because those needs um desires and limits are not being treated with respect in kind of a broader cultural context so even the, though the focus is on gender for this episode there are other intersections and aspects that cannot be ignored. So, and I think that's true for every episode. Whenever we talk about gender, we're just not talking about gender. We're talking about um, so many different aspects of kind of dominant societal and cultural scripts. However, I will try to stay focused on self-consent and gender expression and roles for this episode. So... How and where are we able to express our gender in ways that are self-consensual? That has been a question that's been on my mind because often I see people um, both, like I said, in either the therapy room or when talking to community people or on social media talking about how they might feel they can or cannot express their gender in certain ways because of societal and cultural expectation. So, for example, often uh, transmasculine people feel it's harder for them to wear makeup or wear clothes that are deemed to be more feminine and kind of dominant cultural aspects or 
um, kind of feminine people um, who find it harder to kind of express their genders in ways that do not do not conform to cultural or social expectations. For example, from being very sporty and developing muscles to not wanting to wear hyper-feminine clothes. Um, and so there is kind of this pressure of how do we feel about our gender internally and then how do we express it outward, outwardly, right? Um, and how and where do we feel that we can um, express our gender in a way that's self-consensual. So we check in with ourselves and we're like, I feel really good about wearing this beautiful suit and makeup and uh, this wonderful lipstick and a beautiful scarf with the suit and tie. Um, yes, and this is an example from me going to listen to the orchestra, dear listeners. And um, and where do we feel pressured to conform to societal, familial, and other discourses. For example, where do we feel pressure to present in a certain way? And feeling pressure is not bad. It doesn't mean that we are conforming or we're giving in to the man, to the dominant kind of uh, cisgenderist, racist kind of patriarchy, colonial patriarchy. It just means that we need to make decisions uh, where we might want to fine-tune, is this decision I'm making for myself or is this decision because of pressures by society, culture, or family? And of course, it's not that binary, right? All of our decisions are really placed on this large landscape and there are lots of things to consider. Safety, for example, is an important concern. Personally, I might make decisions of how I express my gender, even based on geographical location. I mean, in Italy, um, for example, when I go visit, I feel fairly safe in Rome, but I'm also aware that there is a lot of transphobic violence in uh, my country of origin. And so I might make different choices than when I'm here on what is currently known as Minneapolis and in myself, Minneapolis particularly neighborhood where there are many trans and non-binary folks and where I'm actually feeling fairly safe to express my gender in um, a less conforming way. So partially we might want to consider geographical location. We also need to consider how much autonomy do we have over our own bodies and choices. For example, people who are minors might not have autonomy and choice over which clothes are being bought for them by their families, whether they're being bought makeup or not, um, how our families are perceiving their gender and disabled people living in group homes might have some of that autonomy taken away. Hopefully not, but unfortunately we do know that there are a lot of abuses of power that happen in group homes. So those who are reliant on kind of group homes or caregiver settings might not have as much autonomy over their own bodies and choices. And also other issues like systemic racism. I've often um, heard from indigenous black and brown folks that it's not as safe for them to express um, their to express their gender in less conforming way and more expansive way or more kind of rebellious to dominant cultural ways if we want to call them that i like expansive more than rebellious honestly but um that is not safe because it increases the visibility in a systemically racist environment and therefore might make them more of a target for violence harassment and violence 
um, and that is the reality. So even when we're talking about self-consent and gender expression, those things do not happen in a vacuum. Those things do not um, happen independently from all the other kind of um, discourses of power and privilege um, in society, if you like. And in terms of roles, so we talked a little bit about expressions, but I also want to think about gender roles for a little while. In terms of role, we might feel the pressure to live up to certain roles because of our gender identity and expression. For example, I'll give another personal example. Um, As a disabled person who used to be femme-presenting, in some ways, and who has mobility issues and, and strength issues. So it's things like I cannot kind of pick up and lift tables very easily or even the grocery or even on some days open water bottles. I've, I've been known to ask complete strangers at a bus station or a train station if they could please open a water bottle for me if I've forgotten to bring my own water bottle and I had to buy a plastic one. So when I was femme presenting as a disabled person, there was some more leeway for appearing what in uh, kind of dominant societal and cultural scripts we might call weak, which really makes my skin crawl even saying that because it's not a matter of weakness. It's a matter of mobility and strength, which um, we have a broad range of and mine varies also from day to day. Um, but when I started to present more masculine there was um, more uh, disbelief whenever I needed support or I said, no, I can't do that. Um, there was also an assumption that I was being lazy or that I did not want to cooperate. And sometimes people were downright hostile if I said no to doing things like um, something that was more uh, manual, like lifting a table or doing something kind of accused me of like not wanting uh, to do that and got really hostile and in my face um, because a masculine presentation for them was incongruent with an inability to do heavy physical tasks. Um, and also there's an age aspect. I went to occupational therapy and um, with a new provider and the provider was like, oh yes, you know, as we get older, those things happen. And I said to them, I actually feel my age is kind of catching up to what my disabilities have been for a little while. So now that I'm older and kind of almost 50, there is more acceptance of some of my challenges with mobility and strength because of my age and because we live in a very ableist society that equates youth with physical strength and uh, physical mobility, which of course it's a totally ableist assumption because many young people do not uh, necessarily have physical strength or mobility. So there's an intersection of things that make um, how people perceive what our role should be around our gender um, in different ways. And um, I really think that this idea of self-consent, gender identity and expression really affects all gender identities in different ways. However, for trans and or, and or non-binary people, um, it is it definitely presents unique challenges. And I often feel that trans and or non-binary people, uh, as well as gender expansive people of all gender identities, 
really are kind of at the forefront of what everybody else experiences and is impacted by. But there are unique ways in which this idea of being able to express your gender, um, both in terms of expression and role in whatever way feels most authentic to you, impacts particularly trans and non-binary people because it can lead to the complete erasure and invalidation of their gender identities. So for example, if we look at the criteria to meet a diagnosis of gender dysphoria in children, and we could have a whole other episode, and we probably will, about um, this whole idea of diagnosing people with gender dysphoria. But often having a diagnosis of gender dysphoria is essential for people to access services. And so even to meet those criteria, uh, people have to demonstrate that they're into toys um, that were not designed for their um, gender assigned at birth and they're into friends who are of the opposite, uh, who are opposite of their gender assigned at birth and so on and so on. But where does that leave people who do not have a stereotypical gender identity and expression? So, for example, when I look at my own identity and expression growing up, uh, my mom, when I came out as trans and non-binary, had a really hard time understanding that. And she kept going back to my gender expression and role when I was growing up. You know, she kept saying, but you were into Barbies and you were doing a lot of choreography and dance and musicals. And the way I explained it to her, luckily Glee, um, which is a TV show that's in the U.S., made it all the way to Italy. And I knew she was watching it. I said, Mom, if I had been a character in Glee and I had been born, if I had been assigned male at birth and, you know, in... Um, if I had been born a boy, just to kind of make it simpler um, for her to understand, I would not have been Finn, the quarterback. I would have been Kurt, kind of the, the musical geek who was into making his own costume and was like super gay. Um, and it took me a long time um, because of that societal and cultural pressure to really have self-consent around my own kind of masculine presentation and really embrace a more feminine, fluid, queer, masculine presentation as a non-binary person. So I do think that trans and non-binary people are impacted because if we present in ways that do not conform to societal and cultural expectations, first of all, our identity might be completely erased and we might be invalidated to the point that we do not get to have access to essential health services, but also we might have people refuse to use our pronouns because we're presenting in a way that they do not understand or it's not congruent with their expectations or, or understanding of our gender identity. But I believe that people of all genders are impacted. So yes, trans and non-binary people are impacted in ways that are core and not okay, by the way, not okay to invalidate or erase somebody's identity just because of the way they're presenting or because of their role as well. I remember being at a large international conference of experts on gender and presenting some data and somebody actually did ask me, but if a trans masculine person is having sex with men, can be can they really be trans? And I said, yes, because gender and sexuality are two different things. And there is no reason why trans masculine people cannot be gay, bisexual or fluid in some way and have sex with cis men. Um, but really, 
these ideas are so embedded of what it means to be a man and what it means to be a woman and they do impact trans and non-binary people in some very core way, like I said, in ways that lead to erasure and invalidation. But I think that people of all genders are impacted. For example, if we think about roles, we know that there is a lot of stigma around cis men who do traditionally um, female, like jobs that are female dominated, like cis men or nurses or stay-at-home cis dads. In other ways, we know there are a lot of initiatives to support cis women in science and engineering because on a societal and cultural level, there are many barriers to that. And it's a role that's been traditionally seen as male. And so cis women engineers might have to overcome kind of stigma and um, systemic barriers to be able to embrace those careers. And in terms of expression, kind of feminine expressing cisgender men um, are often more targeted for harassment and violence and masculine expressing cis women are often harassed for their presentation including in bathrooms so everybody is impacted um it's just the kind of often trans and non-binary people are at the forefront of the impact so to speak so as we're kind of coming towards the end of this episode, I really want to reflect about what would a world in which self-consent around gender was valued um, look like. So if we did value kind of self-consent around gender expression and gender roles, what would our world look like? Um, and that is really um, something that I would love to hear um, about from you listeners. And I think many of us are already building that world. I think that world has existed um, in the past, also historically in um, cultures and times where kind of uh, gender diversity and gender expansiveness um, was completely uh, embraced as fact and where um, many indigenous cultures, for example, add several words uh, for gender, not just two words. Um, so those worlds have existed and I believe they can exist again. And there are definitely pockets in which those worlds exist. But I really want to, um, I really want to invite all of you listeners to wonder what would it look like to respect our own needs, desires, and limits around gender expression and gender identity. I do believe it would open up a beautiful world of possibilities and fluidity for everybody. And I believe that world of possibilities and fluidity is particularly important for young people who might want to be playful around gender. And actually, you know what? It's not just for young people and children. Let's face it. Why can't we all be playful and fluid around gender and really express our gender in a, in a range of ways? And unfortunately, we can't because of all we can't always, I would just say, because of all the different concerns that I talked about earlier, things like, you know, safety, which might be dependent on our particular intersection or, you know, our geographical location, our autonomy, kind of the systemic oppression that we might face and so on. But I would love for us to at least dream of a world where we could have self-consent around gender expression, um, gender roles, and even gender identity. It's okay if our identities change over time. I would love to hear from your listeners about your own experiences with self-consent and gender. You can contact me at genderstoriespodcast at gmail.com. That's genderstoriespodcast at gmail.com. Once again, 
If you want to learn more about the whole idea of self-consent, please check out Sophie Graham's material at loveuncommon.com. That's her website, loveuncommon.com. And of course, if you want to learn more about gender in general, please check out the two books now that I have co-authored with Mac John Barker, How to Understand Your Gender, A Practical Guide for Exploring Who You Are, which is already out, and Life is in Binary, which is going to be out in May, but you are absolutely uh, able to pre-order it and also let your independent bookstore know that it's coming out so they can order it. And I would also love if you would consider um, supporting my Patreon um, as I try to grow this podcast and kind of show up more consistently, at least, uh, you know, every other week I'm doing my best. Um, and you can find my Patreon at www.patreon.com slash gender stories. And I really want to give a shout out to the beautiful folks um, in my community from all over the world that are supporting my podcast already. I want to shout out to Lakin and Karen and Jen, Leora, Max, Terry and Ruth for believing in me and believing in this podcast. I really, really appreciate it. I really appreciate you. The podcast is a labor of love and I hope um, it brings something to your listeners. And if it brings you something, please consider supporting it at www.patreon.com slash gender stories or please consider buying my books. That's another way of supporting me as an independent author. In the meantime, I hope you can have self-consent with yourself, around your gender, and more. And until then, please take good and gentle care of yourself.